This is episode number 304, all about coaching masters athletes with coach Frank Overton. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. The other thing we talk about with athletes is, you know, do your best. And that that sounds cliche, but if you can leave it all out there, only you really knew that you did that. And if you have a really strong race mentally, gave it your all, you were in it the whole time. You didn't think negative thoughts. Or if you did, you overcame them and you, you persevered. Oftentimes me, myself personally, that's a good race. I don't need to win. And if I can have that good race mentally, it's a victory. Today, I'm really excited about today's topic, coaching masters athletes. So if you are a masters athlete, or even if you're not, there's a lot of great tips in here as to how to approach training in general as an endurance athlete. I had the privilege of sitting down with fast cat coach, Frank Overton, who is a full-time cycling coach and a USA cycling level one coach since 2006. He founded fast cat coaching in 2002 to live out his dream to help cyclists. And about 10 years ago, I actually worked with Fast Cat Coaching as an athlete whenever I lived in Boulder, Colorado. He focuses primarily on Masters Road, Gravel, Fondo, Time Trial, Mountain Bike, and Cyclocross athletes who take their training seriously. He previously worked for the Priority Health Professional Cycling Team in 2006, as well as the U.S. National Team in Europe for the 2007 World Cup race season. So Frank has a lot of experience. He's worked with hundreds and hundreds of athletes. And he also has different coaches that work at FastCat. And his knowledge is spanning many years and many disciplines of cycling. Frank raced competitively first as a semi-pro mountain biker and then as a Cat 1 roadie for about 10 years. He started power-based training, utilizing a sports science background to maximize athletic performance. Something I didn't know about Frank is that he has his master's degree in physiology from North Carolina State University and comes from medical school, spinal cord research, and molecular biotechnology. Whoo, that's a mouthful. mouthful. <laughs> and he even holds a U.S. patent for discovering a gene. So Frank is a pretty interesting guy. In this week's episode, he and I talked about master's athletes. We talked about recovery tips, performance goals, how to set appropriate goals, and so much more. We also talked about heart rate variability, which is something that is super hot as a topic in endurance sports. We talked about how to make progress, especially as you are a master's athlete and you might not be as fast as you once were and you might not be able to train like you once were able to train. So how do you measure progress? And again, even if you're not a master's athlete or even a serious athlete, I think that there is a lot that you will get out of today's episode. One key performance metric to help you go from good to great is paying attention to your nutrition. And how do you know if your nutrition is working other than how you feel? Well, that's where Inside Tracker comes in. Inside Tracker, if you haven't heard, is a company that takes your blood work and has over 40 biomarkers that helps you optimize for things like endurance sports, helps you optimize for things like sleep, for heart health, and many, many other things, any goals that you might have. They use data-driven science to make recommendations in your diet and in your lifestyle to improve upon certain biomarkers. 
And the reference ranges of those biomarkers are set for what your goals are. So if you were to go to a doctor's office and just get a complete blood count done or some blood work, the reference ranges there would not necessarily be the same as inside trackers because those are meant to just keep you alive, either sick or healthy, where inside tracker helps you optimize those biomarkers in order to be at your best. There's a high level of sophistication looking at things like your vitamin D at various lipid panels at C-reactive protein, which is a measure of inflammation and many more. My most recent inside tracker test showed me that I am starting to get low in iron, which was a surprise because I've never had low iron before, but I did just have a baby and iron is a pretty important thing to have dialed in your life, especially if you want to perform as an athlete and also if you just want to have good energy. They also do HbA1c testing, which is an important metric for diabetes and screening for diabetes. So go to InsideTracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off. I highly recommend their ultimate test. And they also do an inner age, which looks at specific biomarkers and gives you an inner age. And that's at InsideTracker.com slash Sonia. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you are enjoying this podcast. There are many more fantastic guests queued up for the summer that I'm really excited about. And if you want a weekly dose of inspiration, make sure you're signed up to my newsletter at sonyalooney.com where I dive into everything high performance. And I'm usually focused on the mental skills that you need to perform at a high level and to have a strong sense of well-being. And I recently have changed the intro to my podcast, if you might have noticed. I used to say... The Sonia Looney Show is about how to live a high-performance life, but really it's about high-performance and well-being. And well-being is such an important part of our lives. It's part of what makes fulfillment sustainable and what brings meaning to the things that we are doing on a daily basis. And with that, here is Frank Overton. Frank, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Sonia. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here and chatting with you. Yeah. It's so fun to get to reconnect. We were just talking before I hit record, but just, I used to live in Boulder and I was coached by fast cat coaching and it's just really great to reconnect. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was back in the day. What was that? Like 11, 12 years ago. Yeah, it was. doesn't feel like it's been that long. It's like, wow, I've been riding bikes a really long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me and, and having me on your podcast. Yeah, so I'm excited to dig into your expertise about how to be your best as a master's athlete. And right before we hit record, I said, like, what age does somebody become a master's athlete? And then I realized quickly that the answer wasn't as cut and dry as I thought. So can you answer that question? Yeah, sure. I'll try to. Well, USA Cycling has a 30 plus race category for master's nationals. So or maybe it's cyclocross nationals. They call it the baby masters. And then when I was coming up, I was racing pro one, two, and then the next step was 35 plus. So it was 35 plus one, two, I always considered that masters. Nowadays, when we talk about it, we really are mostly speaking about 40 plus and then 50 plus, and then even 60 plus, like in those 10 year decades, because the physiology for those athletes changes, whether you're in your forties, fifties, and sixties, I think a lot of athletes in their thirties can still perform at an extremely high level. And however, once you get into your forties, uh, father time does take over. And as one of my friends, you probably remember Michael Robson, he calls it, uh, you get a case of the OLDs and <laughs> there's just changes physiologically and hormonally in, in your body that we we want to try to fight and you can fight some of it. And then some of it is just a fact of, of life. And, and that's what we 
we talk about a lot, or at least I do uh, with the, with our community and athletes. I actually just had a realization. It was a few weeks ago that I'm turning 40 next year. Like I still, I'm still 38. So I'm like, Oh, and then I realized, wait a second, next summer I'm turning 40. So technically I'll be, you know, knocking on that OLD zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well also look at it this way in the positive light, you can, you kind of get an upgrade in your race category. And that's the way a lot of masters athletes think of it. Like when they bump up to the next level up, all of a sudden now they're the, the youngest athlete in that category. So they, you know, it's like downgrading from cat two to cat three or, um, yeah, something like that. But I think it's also just a number from my experience, 38 to 43, I really didn't notice a difference in my performance at all, but you know, from like 46 to 47, really the transition from 47 to 48 and 49 has been noticeable for at least for me. And it's all, it's individual for a lot of athletes. Well, you mentioned some physiological and hormonal changes that happen. And I know that it's different for men versus women, but can you speak to some of those based on kind of the decade that you're in? (laughs) Sure. Well, uh, you know, I studied physiology in graduate school, but I'm not an endocrinologist nor a, you know, or a a physician or anything, you know, as I understand it, hormones that decrease in males, testosterone, and that's why there's a big, like low T, you know, market for, for men, my age and, and, and older. So testosterone decreases. I think, um, I've noticed a change in my vision also, uh, mm-hmm. I had a, had a bike computer and then one day, like within a matter of weeks, I just couldn't see the display read it. <laughs> so, so I upgraded from the Wahoo Bolt to the Wahoo Rome, which had a bigger screen. The big screen and, TV. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. I posted that on Instagram and, you know, some of my other friends, same age were like, yeah, I did the same thing. It was like within a matter of weeks. So yeah, we're all, we need bifocals now and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'll give a quick plug. I haven't actually read this book yet, but there's a new book out by Stacey Sims and Celine Yeager. And it's about like menopause and postmenopausal athletes and all the things that you can do for women. So for the the women listening, that could be an interesting resource too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as we get older, there's a, I don't want to say it's a myth because it's not, it's not a myth, but our performance can decrease over time. And it's probably different for everybody. Like in the elite category, you will still see people performing in their early forties at a really high level, like on the start of the Olympics or at the start of like a world cup race, you'll see women in their twenties and women in their forties. But when, like, when does performance start to decline? Yeah. I mean, I think it's individual for, for many athletes, you know, just from my endocrinology studies in graduate school, you know, 38 to 44, your hormonal profiles begin to decrease. And it's not, it's not like flipping a switch. It's, it's gradual. It takes years. It's probably, you know, still, still going on. So it's, it's just one of those things where you're in great shape and, you know, like then four years later, you look back and you're like, oh, wow, you know, my performance has kind of gone down a little bit or, you know, quite, a, quite at least to a point where you really notice it. Like I have power data from when I was 35 and power data from when, you know, last summer, my, you know, threshold powers decreased like, sadly, like 75 watts. And yeah, so, you know, that's like one way of uh, quantifying the, the change over 15 years. 
Yeah. And then like, I imagine that the way that you either, you know, for people that don't race the way that you ride or the way that you race might change. If your threshold uh, is lower, the way that you train and race might change. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why a lot of athletes and, you know, are really gravitating towards gravel because it becomes less, uh, like a full gas, super intense experience, like cross country mountain biking or crit racing or time trialing or hill climbing or, you know, road, whereas it just becomes more of an, of an endurance event, which we're all really good at by now. Cause we've been riding for 10, 15, 30 years. And so you kind of FTP and your threshold power output is less of a performance factor. And yeah, you're just kind of going towards what you're, you're naturally good at. Yeah. I feel like my master days are going to be good because that's already kind of what my strength is. <laughs> so yeah. that'll be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really ever see myself lining up for a sub two hour cross country mountain bike race <laughs> again. You know, I mean, that was like, you know, two hours as hard as you can go. And now these gravel races, they're, yeah, there's like a cool five hour, six hour long ride. I mean, granted they're, they're hard and everything, but just in a different, different way. And oftentimes I find the older athletes can do better than the younger athletes because they're smarter and clever and they don't, I always use the expression, the tortoise and the hare and the tortoise beats the hare every time. Yeah. There's certainly a perspective taking that you get the older you get. And even with like how you, how you treat yourself when you have an injury. Like I still think that when I was younger and I know lots of other people used to do really stupid things and trying to train through injuries and race through injuries in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, we are definitely wiser now, uh, in our older years. Yeah. So in terms of training, like what are some, I know it depends on the event and all these things, but what are some general prescriptions you think that people can add into their, their weekly or, you know, biweekly workouts? as a master's athlete? Yeah, I think you need to really add in more recovery. I mean, we can do the same training up until a certain point, but we just recover at a, a slower rate. And, you know, in the olden days, in the olden days, I mean, I could do two mm -hmm. cyclocross races back to back, Saturday, Sunday, bam, and no problem. Or two mountain bike races in the old corpse series in the Norba days, you race both Saturday and Sunday and never really notice anything. But nowadays, you know, if I race, try to race day two after I've done a cyclocross race or something, it's just, it's not, I just can't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not recovered. And so generally masters athletes, more recovery days, they need to kind of reduce their training volume. Like, you know, young, young athletes can do an endurance training you know, 14, 16, 20 hours a week. Maybe, you know, if you're racing professionally, you could dip up into the, the 20 hour plus weeks, 25 hours. Master's athletes, you know, I think 12, 14 hours is legit. You know, you got to be like on it in terms of your recovery modalities, your sleep, your nutrition. You have to try harder the older you get at recovery. I mean, as a younger athlete, when I was 30, 35, and you don't even really have to think about it. It just happens. You just go to sleep, you wake up, boom, poof, keep going. But now it's like, you know, poor night's sleep, you know, improper nutrition, stress at work, uh, at home, that all needs to be managed and, and factored into to training. Do you prescribe more recovery days? Like 
a lot of people, you know, the general consensus, especially for younger athletes is one recovery day per week. Do you prescribe more than that as people get older? Two, two, two. Mondays and Fridays. Yeah. Just about for all of our masters level athletes, 35 plus, especially if you're working, even if you're maybe 30 plus or, you know, it's generally two Mondays and Fridays off. We call it the working person's training plan design. So Mondays, Fridays off short structured interval workouts, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, and then your longer endurance training on Saturdays and Sundays when it's presumed that you're not, not working. And, um, for the younger athletes, you can do, yeah, six days a week, one day off, but yeah, it also just works mentally because you kind of, by the time you get to Friday, it's like, Oh, I needed a break just to get ready for the weekend to rest up. Yeah. Yeah, I think something else that is starting to get talked about more is that stress is stress. Like your body doesn't care if it's stress from training or stress from life. And if you're talking about training adaptation, like the type of stress does matter, but in general, in terms of recovery and how you show up to your workouts, if you're exhausted because work is stressful or you have kids or, you know, any number of things that's going to impact your recovery too. It's not just the workout. That's absolutely right. Yeah. We measure stress in two, two ways, the stress you have from riding your bike and then the other 22 hours of the day, if you did a 20, a two hour bike ride. And we primarily measure this with HRV, but we do have our athletes wear wearables, like a, like a whoop, or mm-hmm. I have an aura ring on mm-hmm. as well, just comparing the numbers and the looking at your sleep and your, your HRV is a great way to quantify stress along with your, the, the your rod data and to help you manage that stress recovery balance. I want to geek out a minute about HRV. Um, I also, I wear a whoop, but I just wear it at night because I think that the strain is an incorrect calculation. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just, we can argue and that's if you want, but that's just my take on it. Oh, it's absolutely right. It is. (laughs) It's, it's not as good as, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but yes. No, no, it's it's, it's all good. Yeah. yeah, I primarily use it for HRV because I wouldn't get, I used to have like sweet elite, the app on my phone, but I just wasn't getting my heart rate strap out and just doing it. I just, I just never would. So having that, having a measurement tool, that's going to just give me a number is really helpful. But Mm -hmm. I find that the, like, I haven't looked into how hormones impact HRV, but your heart, your cardiac system is one of several systems in the body that have to work together whenever you're going to do a training day. So there's been days where I've had like horrific HRV, but I use that as a secondary number. I don't look at it and say, oh, that means I shouldn't go train today and I'll go out and I'll feel amazing on my bike. And I've had days where I have amazing HRV, but just feel like rotten on the bike. So how do you, how do you take that data and then consider those other factors? Yeah. I mean, what you notice individually is what a lot of our other athletes notice as well. And really the power of HRV and sleep and these wearable trackers is in the trends. So not getting lost in the trees, but looking at the forest as a whole from that 10,000 foot aerial view. So the mm-hmm. trends is your HRV trending low or higher and why, what um, implications does that have for future training? Why did it have for, for happen for, for past training? Because we've all had great races when the data would suggest otherwise, like what you're talking about. And uh, cause like, like I'll give you a great example. So Phil Gaiman, I coach him and he's sponsored by whoop and he probably won't mind me saying this, but a lot of times he'll wake up in the red 
and he'll be like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, let's keep following the training plan because I think this is a blip and go out there and see, and, you know, maybe 75% of the time he's like, yeah, you're right. I don't know what was up or maybe one out of four times. It was like, yeah, I truly did feel like garbage this day. And then we just go back to the data. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. And I always, you know, when you're following a well-designed scientifically laid out paradise training plan, that is customized for you, that training plan will take care of a lot of the the guesswork out of what to do with your data. A lot of times we look for that HRV to kind of coincide when, when you should be tired or stressed. And then other times when you've had like a rest week, for example, we want to see your HRV start tracking nice and high as an indication that supports the rest week, which was the goal of the, the training plan. So on these two recovery days that are recommended, um, a general recommendation for masters athletes, the Monday and Friday, what are mm-hmm. some recovery tips, things that people do? Cause I, I think that a lot of people are like oh, sweet, a recovery day. I'm going to go for an easy bike ride, or I'm going to do yoga, or I'm going to work an extra five hours or, you know, they're, they're not actually doing recovery. So what are your recommendations there? Well, yoga is a great recovery modality, in my opinion, maybe not less so for the the actual physical work. Cause I've, I can go to a yoga class and be tired afterwards, but I think more so for the mindfulness and relaxation and the breath work. I always say yoga is moving meditation and a lot of us cyclists in that, you know, we're not good at sitting still. And so yoga, if you can really breath to movement, that can be your meditation. With that said, everyone's individual and you know, if you, if a cyclist can meditate on a rest day, I mean, really you can meditate any day, but on the, that one rest day, you can tell an athlete, okay, your training today does not involve the bike, but I want you to do a one hour yoga class or 20 minutes of meditation. And I want you, you know, another technique is like, okay, I want you to lay on the couch for 30 minutes and just chill out. Right. And not really, you know, be go, go, go. And I like to have athletes do that. Um, There's another exercise from Dr. Eric Goodman. Most masters athletes, as we get older, our back starts to bother us when we ride. And there's this 12 minute video from Dr. Eric Goodman. His quote is do this every day, no back pain ever. And you can, I've got it memorized by now, but that's a great thing to do on your recovery day take care of your back. And then finally, we, a lot of band exercises, mobility, a lot of like, like hip work, mobility work to just loosen up, but it could also be getting in the Norma on the couch for 30 to 60 minutes and just vegging out. It could be spinning. We have this thing called meal prep Monday and uh, spending that time that you would normally ride your bike, you know, working on your nutrition and prepping your food and you know, you know, cooking your meals and stored it in Tupperware could be working on your bike, uh, get it ready for the, your, a big route or an event that the next day, but what it shouldn't be, if you do, you know, we get this question a lot from athletes that do have time that to, to train, they're not necessarily working like 10 hours a day. If you do do a rod, we put a heart rate and a watt ceiling. So if your FTP is 250 Watts, like go out and ride little ring only, keep your heart rate in zone one, you know, a a watt ceiling of about 150 Watts, really easy. Like no pressure on the pedals. Can't do it on the trainer. Coffee shop rod is awesome. No more than like an hour of shimmy time. And 
know, maybe take a nap afterwards if you can. Naps are great uh, if you can get one in. That sounds like the down regulation piece is really important, like yoga, meditation, sitting on the couch, doing nothing or sitting with the, you know, the Normatec legs, and then just keeping your, yourself, like your, your systems down-regulated with that recovery ride is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so many athletes are just super hot performers, always want to be productive. So getting into that relaxed state is really important. And you can track how successful or not you are with, if you can get your HRV to go up uh, the next day, for example, you know, if you're really into your recovery and getting into that down-regulated state, you know, a float tank, if you have that in your community is kind of a trippy experience, but <laughs> can be, it can be advantageous. My HRV always goes up after I spend time in a float tank. I did a float tank once it was years ago and I was actually really nervous about going in there because it's complete sensory deprivation. And I, I was worried that I would go nuts in there, but I actually really liked it. <laughs> yeah. I had a similar experience because I lost track of time. I mean, like really lost track of time and the, the room was locked because of privacy. And I was worried that they, it had been so long that they wouldn't know to come and get me because the room was locked and I couldn't hear. So it, so I checked what time it was and it had been 40 minutes and that, that as long as I could take. And the next time I did a float tank, I was really conscious of trying to really see the whole hour through be, be more patient, but that's the kind of stuff that goes on in your head when you do that sensory deprivation. Yeah. Yeah. And something that I've been thinking about, like, especially as, you know, I have a newborn at home and taking more recovery days and honoring that is if you're training and you're not consistent in your training, like that's when you need to start thinking of, okay, do I need to take an extra recovery day? You know, just generally. And then also knowing when you need to just call it a day and go home. I think it's really hard for people whenever they've like made this time to go out and ride it's their time. And then they go out and they are not feeling great because of whatever the, whatever the reason. And then they just don't want to turn around and go home and give themselves more rest. Uh, mm -hmm. do, do masters athletes tend to need more rest or do they have more, more days where they go out to try to perform and then it just doesn't work out? Yeah. There's a couple of ways to answer that in a couple of different scenarios you know, the, the athletes with little children that where you do get woken up in the, in the middle of the night, uh, quite a lot, you get used to it after a while, but you, what you also get used to is that dull, this is how it is feeling. And as coaches, we try to, you know, maybe not make their training as intense. And if you've been consistent in your training, that's going to carry you through a lot of these days where you don't feel like riding or feel like going home. And then a couple of scenarios to that are, it's like, if you had hard intervals and you're like, you, we're always like, you know, warm up for 30 minutes and then at least start the interval or see how that first one goes. And then if you still feel like garbage, well, then that's a sign. But rather than go home, we'll just say, you know, when in doubt, ride it out. And zone two endurance training is oftentimes it feels more palatable, more doable than, you know, doing VO two max or threshold sure. intervals. So the workout can go from threshold or VO two to just endurance. And then you're still productive for the day. And you kind of check that box of consistency. What we don't talk about or want athletes to do is go from VO two 
don't feel good to go back home and maybe not necessarily get anything done when they could have benefited mm-hmm. from just, you know, just change your, your goals on the fly with regards to, to training. That's like a teachable moment because a lot of athletes, they're very, what's the word? Uh, just tell me what to do. And, and if I can't do that, I, I don't, I'll just go back home, like but it's be able, the ability to, yeah. The ability to change in, in process. Yeah. And can we talk about sleep? Cause we just barely brushed on it, but you mentioned like, you know, interrupted sleep, but also talking about sleep for masters athletes. How, mm-hmm. Like does, does our sleep change as we get older? I think, yes. I mean, if you recall back to when you were in college, you probably could sleep till noon. Not no problem. Whereas I can barely sleep till 7am without an alarm. And naturally, even if nothing is waking me up. So I do think our ability to sleep longer changes and that's individual. I realize that may not be the case for, for a lot of athletes, but yeah, yeah. I think a lot of athletes, you know, life gets more complicated. There's more anxiety. A lot of the things that we work on with athletes is the ability to fall back asleep. If you wake up in the middle of the night, your brain turns on all of a sudden. Now you're thinking about what was bothering you during the day and you can't go back to sleep. And then, you know, we, we develop like meditation strategies, you know, when you were little, you're maybe your parents said count sheep and, you know, it's, it's a really highly effective, you know, technique for going back to sleep if you can, can practice on it. So that's like a real thing. And then also I think hormonally, I don't might be making this up, but I think hormonally, we just, we're just not as good as sleepers as we were when we were younger. And one thing that we look at with athletes these days is the amount of time you spend in REM sleep versus time asleep. I mean, that's important. These studies show if you can spend like 20 to 25% of the total time in bed asleep in REM sleep, like if you get eight hours and you spend two hours in REM sleep, that's pretty great. But if you get seven hours of sleep and then you spend hour and a half of REM, that's pretty good. So you can still get a, like what you previously would think is a poor night's sleep with not a much total time. But if you're getting your REM sleep, that's one way of adapting. I'm hearing that there's a lot of mental components to what you're offering. And when you talk with athletes, I heard you mention meditation earlier, you talked about getting back to sleep. So what type of meditation and mindfulness techniques or practices do you offer? Like if, if an athlete comes to you and you start working with them and they don't even have any type of base of that, how do you get started and and where does it go? Yeah. Great question. I think a lot of times we, we have to assess out whether the athlete's open-minded to trying something like that. A lot of athletes, they're like, yeah, nah, I'll just figure it out. But if they're open-minded, the first thing we do is, I think you've podcasted with my podcast co-host, Jackson and Jackson Long. And Jackson recorded like a guided meditation on one of our podcasts a few years ago that we'll actually just refer him to that podcast. Hey, go listen to this. And this is what we believe meditation is for you and how it can benefit. And then honestly, we just like rec- refer them to like, like a headspace or calm app. Mm-hmm. And then we, we talk about it other than that, like how you're using it, you know, you know, honestly, I think those apps are pretty good for getting started. And then it just becomes a conversation after that, checking in with them periodically of, 
you know, what's their meditation practice like or not? And how, how's it going? And just offer them support that way. It's like something that the, the individual athlete has to develop on their own. And we, as coaches are kind of just checking in on them and encouraging them to, to explore that. Yeah. The mental part of being an athlete and especially performing under pressure and the mindful self-awareness, like the non-judgmental piece of like knowing where your mind is when you're under the gun to perform, or even just if you're going on a group ride and you're nervous, knowing how you show up and knowing where your mind goes can be really effective for improving your performance. Cause what you believe really impacts how you perform. Amen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also believe it begins in training and how you train is how you're going to race or perform. And so we, when we prescribe VO twos or anaerobic work or threshold work, we dive into how the athlete was thinking in between the, in their head during that, during that work. Did they say that those sucked and they quit or did they say they sucked and they gritted it out and they, you know, you know, still accomplish the workout. So those are things that we like to uh, work on with athletes long before they get to the actual performance part. Cause that, that is the mental practice during, during interval sessions. Yeah. And then I always come back. I'm like, you know, if you develop your yoga practice and if you can take, if you can be doing your VO twos and if you can take like a deep breath and relax the death grip on your handlebars, flap your arms like a chicken <laughs> you know, you can get through your VO twos and you're going to be able to get to that same spot in, in your race or event when the going gets tough. I also wanted to ask you about the psychology of being a master's athlete, because as you mentioned, um, you said when you're 35, like your FTP wattage was 75 Watts higher than it is now. And that has performance implications and maybe, you know, people when they're younger, they had less inputs or they were just they were just stronger. They're performing at a much higher level level. So their goal setting or their expectations of themselves when they show up to a start line is really different. So like, can you talk about the psychology of being a master's athlete, especially when in the past, maybe you were a little bit quicker and performing at a, a different level? Yeah. I mean, at the highest level, I think master's athletes are stronger mentally, uh, because they've had more, they have more experience. They've had more opportunity to build up that resilience from harder, hard events. They're a little more clever because they've made plenty of mistakes and have learned from them. They're more patient. Whereas, you know, the tortoise and the hare that the, you know, the younger athletes are the hares and they blast off that line. And we masters athletes like wave goodbye to them. And, but we see them a hundred miles later and when we're white passing them and, mm -hmm you know, things, things like that, but master's athletes, you know, we just been at it a little bit longer. So have more experience. So I've had that opportunity to, to become stronger, maybe, you know, not as gung ho or we're more risk averse. Not sure if I'm answering your question, but yeah. Yeah. I can ask it in a different way. It's if you used to be a certain speed and you're just not that fast anymore and you can't get oh. to being that fast, like, how do you reckon with that? That's a great one. You know, I think Myself personally, I, I reckon with that almost every year. And, you know, as a coach, you talk with your athletes about that. It's, it's definitely at the forefront of many, many athletes' minds because they want to see progress, yet 
you know, they, they are seeing a decline in, in performance and it's, how do you, how do you net those out and still see that you're making progress? Because are you just fighting time? Are you losing ground? Even though you are making progress, it's, you, you know, I always like for athletes to really think of improvement personally, like, and, and it gets tough with power data and, you know, having been in the sport for transitioning from your, you know, when you were in your prime to when you're in, not in your prime. And so a lot of it just comes with goal setting and not choosing as lofty of goals or just being more realistic and basing it on more recent performances, not, you know, when you were 34, which is very common athletes are like, yeah, I'm going to get back in shape. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I mean, it's like the Napoleon Dynamite scene where uncle Rico is like, <laughs> get throw that ball over the mountain, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, like that you, you have to, you know, take your cycling from the last six months and then, you know, try to improve upon that as opposed from maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I think most athletes recognize that, but they just, it really helps to have someone to support them through that and, you know, kind of help check them so they don't get maybe discouraged from the way, the way it was long ago. Yeah. I think on the subject of comparison, we know that it's not helpful to compare ourselves to other people, but in some cases it's not helpful to compare yourself to a past version of yourself because you, Mm -hmm. you might've been in a completely different stage of life. Or like we said, there, there are, there are physical declines that happen and hopefully we can slow down that curve as we get older, but comparing Mm -hmm. yourself to where you are, I like saying, like what you said, six months ago is a lot more realistic and a much better way to set a goal than to say, I'm going to be as good as I ever was. Yeah. That's oftentimes, I mean, if you're young, yes, but not as you transition from that younger athlete to the older athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Have more fun, chill out a little more, not be as aggressive with your performance goals and you teaching athletes how to have more fun. I mean, I can, that's another thing. It's like, you know, racing as a younger athlete was so intense. It was all about performance and results. And sometimes we weren't necessarily having fun. And now it's like, you know, go, go do this, have, have the the coffee at the coffee shop and, you know, approach your race this way, as opposed to the, the former way. But don't you think that that could be related to perspective of like, I don't have to prove myself or my worth isn't, you know, only based on my race results. Uh, Cause as you get older, I feel like you, we get better at just finding more. It sounds like silly, but the word, but like f- finding more self-compassion and self-acceptance of, Hey, like I'm, I'm enough and I don't need a race result to prove that I'm enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think the athletes that are enjoying the sport and, and, you know, have that long-term sustainability have really kind of found that. And I think the ones that um, haven't found that they're often, they get really frustrated or not enjoying it. And, you know, they've lost sight of why they're doing what, what they're doing. Yeah. Just to, to have, yeah, more, it's like, you don't really need, like I always remind athletes, you know, we're doing this for fun. This is a hobby. This is not, life and death. This is not, you know, like your career and, and all that. It's like, remember to have fun and, and find the, the joy in it, not necessarily focus on the, the performance, kind of like what you're talking about that you don't need to prove anything. 
it, you, what you can prove is like, if you're having fun, you know, when you're having fun and, and there's a variety and many, many, many ways to make it fun for yourself. It's a lot of times it's getting it right in the, in the head. Yeah. Whenever you put your valuation of yourself on a performance and especially there's a lot of things you can't control with performance. You can only control, you know, how you show up that day, but you can't control how good you are relative to all the other people who have put in the work that day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's also tough with masters racing because a lot of times masters racing at some levels becomes just a, who's been training the most contest. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of athletes that are, they're training a lot and and they're working hard and they have a goal and their situation in life may allow them to, to train a lot and good for them, you know? And then there's other athletes that are like, you know, balancing my, you know, work life training, racing balance more evenly. And I'm not spending as much time towards this to dedicate to other parts, but then you get in the race and you're, you're directly all of a sudden in this competitive moment with, two different athletes in two different life situations. And it's really easy for the, the athlete that is, has taken a more balanced approach to get discouraged and be like, Oh, I got my butt kicked. But really, if you can just remind yourself that you've chosen to not spend as much time training on purpose to give more balance to your life and that you shouldn't really judge yourself compared to that one person that's just, you know, training a lot. And, you know, kicked your butt as a result. Yeah. And I think you, you also talked about goal setting earlier, but this goes back to what is your goal for the race and goal mm-hmm. setting based on not your result compared to somebody else, because in that master's field, you have people who are former professional riders who spent 20 years training at a really high level. And now you have to compete against them. Like that's really difficult. Even if they aren't training as many hours, you have people that are training a lot of hours who maybe weren't, uh, aren't former professionals, but still have that time. And like, you have a huge mix of people. So whenever you have athletes that are lining up for a race, regardless if they're a master's athlete or not, how do you go about having them set a performance goal? Yeah, I think the best way to set a performance goal is as it relates to the the things that you can control. Uh, a lot of athletes like to, like for the longer races like Leadville, where you can select a time and so you're not racing against y- your, your competitors, you're racing against that time, which you previously set like in a year, year past. And so I do like using time as a benchmark. It's a really wonderful goal for a lot of athletes. On the other hand, you have to be really careful. Like this year at Unbound, it could be muddy. And a lot of athletes are like, you know, it'll beat the sun. I didn't beat it last year, but then the mud is going to, you know, add two hours to their time. So you have to, that's like control the controllables and you can't really control the mud. So, but yeah, time is one thing. You know, the other thing we talk about with athletes is, you know, do your best. And I said, that sounds cliche, but if you can leave it all out there, only you really knew that you did that. And if you have a really strong race mentally, gave it your all, you were in it the whole time. You didn't think negative thoughts. Or if you did, you overcame them and you, you persevered. Oftentimes me, myself personally, that's a good race. I don't need to win. And if I can have that good race mentally, it's a victory. And I don't really worry if that was second place or ninth place, you, you know, you know, like when you get done with the race and you're like, you feel so satisfied no matter what place you got. I think teaching athletes that that's, that you can control that you can't necessarily control if like a former world champion shows up to your race and 
<laughs> yeah. They were always good. And that's like a real problem out here in Boulder. That's like a Boulder problem. But yeah, but you can still have a great race, even when that world champion shows up. If you're, if you have set your, your goals and have that, that, that strong race personally. Yeah. There's been a couple Olympians who've been on this podcast and I asked them what their goal is for a race, even if it's the Olympics. And they said their goal is to be proud of their performance. Mm-hmm. It's not based on a result. It's like, I just want to cross that line, feeling proud of who I was that day. And even if I showed up and didn't have my best performance I've ever had, if I showed up and I had flat legs, like just making the best of what I had on that day and knowing that I gave it my all. And that makes me feel proud regardless of what the end result is. Yeah. That's a really good mindset. That's probably why they're Olympians. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They've just gotten really, really good at that. That's probably what carried them through, you know, for all the performances that didn't look that great on paper. Yeah. And then there's also events where you'll do really well. Like me, like I've had races where I've won the race, but I I know that I wasn't at my best and maybe I wasn't in negative headspace or yeah, like that, that, that tends to ruin how I feel about my performance. And that wasn't a performance I was proud of, even though on paper, it was really good. Yeah. And also like if the field wasn't that strong and you weren't challenged and you know, you're, you still didn't have a good performance. I mean, I think like a lot of times for athletes, if you, if you can get into that flow state where you're absolutely singularly focused on like whatever that one goal is like turning the pedals around or moving forward or getting to that finish line. Generally the athletes that get into that, that state are fairly satisfied no matter what the, the outcome. And I think master's athletes are a lot better than that because they've honed that craft over years and years. Whereas the younger athletes, they need to still kind of develop those, those mindset skills. I just realized that we're making an assumption that the master's athletes have been an athlete in that discipline of sport for a really long time. Um, Mm -hmm. There are people that start as master's athletes, but maybe they're brand new to the sport. So how does all this apply to them? Their learning curve is just a lot steeper and those are all coachable moments. And one thing that with the, the, you know, how like you, you hear like the honeymoon phase and, that can last for like a couple of years in, in bike racing. And when you're new to the sport and, you know, you just get into it, it's like, this is absolutely the best ever. So that honeymoon phase is newer to them. Whereas they all, the athletes have been at it a longer, they're no longer in that honeymoon phase. And so it, it works both ways. I think um, for those athletes, it's helping them understand you know, it really is about personal improvement because it's like, look, here, here you are, you started, you were a beginner. And then now you're racing with all these other athletes, showing them that that personal progression is one way that I've found helps a lot of those newer athletes because getting thrust into this field with those world record holders or just the ex pros, it's okay to say to them, Hey, that, you know, they're an ex pro just, you were hanging with them now you're racing with them. Was that fine? Like, yeah. And it's like, well, keep working on it. And, you know, you'll be able to hang with them longer or you'll get better to duke it out with them more. And, you know, things like that, you show them the little, little bits of progress as opposed to the, the athlete. I mean, it goes both ways. The athletes have been in the sport for years and years. I have another question and it's about 
just like health as you get older, um, in sport, because I've heard people say, well, it's really not good for you to be an endurance athlete your whole life. And now that it seems like there's just a lot more older endurance athletes. And I haven't read the book yet, but the haywire heart, mm-hmm. I forget who wrote that, but I have it in my, my bookshelf there. And it's about how, yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about that? Yeah. I think that was Leonard Zinn with a little bit of help from Chris case and you know, I, I get that question from time to time from athletes like are doing long rods unhealthy. And then, you know, I'm not a cardiologist and Dr. Andy Pruitt says, if you're over 40, go get an EKG stress test as part of your annual physical, you know, get your heart looked at. And I think that's very important. We could all, I need to go do that. Uh, haven't done that in a few years, but get, get that looked at. I think, it, you know, it, it's like a moderation is everything. I mean, you don't want to like exercise to the point of, you know, just digging yourself this physical hole that's, you can't climb out of that's, that's fairly unhealthy, but as master's athletes, you have to just work at it more. You have to, like I was saying earlier, I mean, you know, when you're young, it's like your nutrition doesn't impact you as much, nor your sleep, nor your stress. But now it's like, you really, there's more to it than just the time you spend on your bike. There's your sleep, there's your, your, you know, managing your stress, you know, you have to, you want to try to eat right. And then like life choices, like, you know, you, you probably don't want to, you know, remodel the kitchen three weeks before your A event or, or you know, something like that. You, you choose when to be stressed and when, when not to be stressed. I think the thing with the, the haywire heart that you're, you're talking about Leonard Zan and, and Chris Case, that is a, a thing with master's athletes and, you know, just get it checked out and get yourself checked out. That is all preventative medicine. And you can, uh, you know, you're, you know, that's a question for your, for your doctor, but generally by and large exercise is extremely healthy for all of us all the way, you know, for all ages, cycling and most endurance sports are lifelong sports versus your ball and stick sports that we played in, in college. And it's super healthy. And I'm not sure about you, but I have friends from high school and college that weren't athletes and aren't athletes. And, you know, we see each other today and we completely look different and, you know, it's, it's just a stark reminder of how beneficial exercise is for, for athletes of all, all ages, especially cycling is great because it's low impact. Yeah. And like exercise is kind of the keyhole for all those other things that you mentioned. Like if you are a cyclist and you're interested in, you know, improving, then you're probably interested in sleep. You're probably interested in nutrition. You're probably interested in some of these other practices that we talked about because they all go hand in hand and the impact overall health. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people like nowadays in cycling, you know, seven years ago, most of the folks we worked with were hardcore racers or had masters racers or, you know, did the race scene from April through Labor Day or, you know, now it's like, you know, half and half, a lot of folks are just, you know, exercise, cycling just to be better versions of themselves. They don't even compete. They may do long rides. They may do fondos or events, but they're no longer just step-by-step racers. And they're also doing it because it enhances other areas of their life, like relieves stress and helps them handle like a high stress job or, you know, helps them feel good about themselves and stay healthy. Yeah. Again, going back to the point of we ride bikes, cause it's fun. Number one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it's adult. Uh, masters are, have figured out how to prolong fun in terms of keeping rotting, at least the ones that have, are still trying to have fun at it. I have one more question and it's about pre-ride rituals. Like do masters athletes seem to spend more time warming up or you mentioned band work earlier. Like, are there things that you encourage people do? Yeah. I mean, you could, I think you could, we could record a whole other podcast (laughs) on on that, you know, routines uh, seem to be a a big thing, a way to start there. It's like, we have like warm up protocols and we encourage athletes to develop their own, but once they found that one protocol, with that one mean and that routine could be you know how you do your warm-up when you begin it what intensities you know doing two by 30 so forth so forth um you know when you have your last piece of whole food the timing of your breakfast you know hydration coffee you, you know do you warm up on the trainer outside the trainer you know do you do a yoga routine and work on your hip mobility before that do you do use your exercise bands for glute activations yeah, I think it's highly individual. I mean, but there's some masters athletes are just like, F it. I'm just going to the line and they, they start the race, you know, from riding circles around the parking lot. And that, that's just them. I mean, yeah, I mean, it just kind of, it's all varieties, but I think the, the biggest point is the older you get, the more important the warm up is. I mean, when I was so, when I was younger, if I got my warm up in great, but if I didn't, it wasn't the end of the world. I could still, you know, start going hard from the get-go. But the masters athlete, there's been times where you don't get a good warm-up in, the race starts really hard and you're like on your back heels, really struggling. And then maybe if you're lucky, the race like calms down for a bit. And then you're like, whoo, that was my warm-up. But it does take longer for masters athletes to to warm up. And so the importance of that warm-up is more important than when you're younger. Yeah. What about just for day to day, like just for rides, whether it's like a zone two ride or, you know, a hard ride, what you do before you get on your bike. Yeah. So if you're not time crunched, you may want to spend more time warming up like 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Some athletes will report back. They need like 45, 50 minutes of just easy zone two pedaling that, you know, to get them to the point where they're ready to do their intervals. And then that zone two, you may need to like spend five, 10 minutes rolling out of the neighborhood, just soft pedaling, getting that motion going to get to the point of the zone two. And then you can, you know, do your glute activation work. You can do your hip mobility work, even before you get on the the bike and the stretching, the foam rolling. And, you know, I've mentioned the foundations, which doesn't really have that much to do with your warm up, but it can be like a, a part of your uh, daily morning routine, for example, you know, food hydration is more important. And then one thing with the longer warm up that masters tend to contend with, a lot of times we're, we're time crunch. So we're trying to pack as much into a, as little a time as possible. So like this is especially prevalent with indoor cycling where the way you see workouts designed, you can cram, you know, like 30 minutes of, of interval work in a 45 minute workout and, and masters athletes are like, where'd the warm up go? And you're like, well, you know, just use the first couple of intervals as a warm up and don't have as, you may not feel as great, but you're, it's just, you're cramming as much as, as you can in there. So you're like, you're warming up while you're doing the, the intervals. And then maybe by the second set or third rep, you're, you're like, okay, I'm warmed up. And now it's time to cool down and go to work or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of like that, 
it's just one of the challenges of being an older athlete. Yeah, we covered so much today, a really wide topic, and we brushed on lots of things. So I think that people can dive in deeper into some of these bullet points that they can check out in the show notes. Um, where can people find you and your podcast? You know, if you search Fast Cat Coaching on any podcast app, Spotify, iTunes, so forth, I think one of the best places is just to go to fastcatcoaching.com, F-A-S-C-A-T coaching.com. And we, we have all of our training tips, podcasts. We have a lot of our uh, videos up there. We don't have a master's like section for our training tips, but that's, that's the best place to go. And are you guys accepting athletes right now? We are. Yeah. We, myself and my team of, of coaches, uh, we are taking on athletes and you can go to the hire coach tab on our homepage and you can see the process. You can fill out the new athlete questionnaire and then we'll get in touch with you to schedule like a free coaching consultation on phone or zoom or in person. If you're here in Boulder. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing all of your great knowledge. And it was really fun to connect with you again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Sonia. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for listening. And I would love to hear what you learned today and make sure that you tag us up in an Instagram story. So not only do Frank and I get to see what you learned, but also all the people that follow you will benefit from the things that you learned. Taking more than one recovery day was a takeaway that I walked away with and also something that I've been keeping in mind with all of the demands on my time and energy right now. More hours and more days in a row isn't always the thing that's going to make you faster. I'm so grateful that you joined us today as I know there are a lot of podcasts out there in the world right now. A lot of podcasts are absolutely fantastic. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.